you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, I want to read verses 45 through John chapter 8 and the first part of, John, of verse 3. We are embarking on a new chapter in John. We finished John chapter 7, Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, before Christmas, I believe. And now we are going to begin John chapter 8, which is a very important chapter in the Gospels. It is a very intense uh, discourse between Jesus and the ruling elite of Jerusalem, of all the land, actually. And it's impossible for me right now to to explain all the intricacies of the, of the chapter. I don't have the time to do that, but I can tell you that it's a, it's a very intense discourse, and many of the great doctrines of the person of, of Christ are found here. And so the first part is the woman taken in adultery, which is found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And I'm hoping to get through the first part of verse 3 this morning. But I want to spend most of our time this morning uh, giving an introduction to John chapter 8 so we can understand the dynamics of what's about to happen in this grand chapter. So let's read John chapter 7, verses 45 through John chapter 8 and verse 3. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, And they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. So these men are speaking to their cohorts, their the men who guard the temple and are insulting them for not bringing Jesus before them, telling them that since they don't believe in him, that none others should also, then they insult the common people of Israel and tell these guards that the people of Israel are cursed. The very people that they are to be serving, they call them cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, the he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth not our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? In other words, if somebody's been charged with a crime or accused of a crime, you investigate it. You gather witnesses. You interview them. And if there are charges to be brought that are credible, then you bring charges. And then you bring him before the court with witnesses. None of this happened in this case at all. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. Chapter 8. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. So this scene takes place the morning after the completion of the week-long Feast of Tabernacles. The beginning verses, like we have already mentioned, verses 1 through 11, reveal that Jesus returned to the temple 
at the break of dawn, early in the morning, he was back in the temple. And when he did that, there was an ever-growing crowd that began to surround him and listen to him. But soon, into his preaching, he was violently interrupted by these same men, some of these same men that were at the council the night before, and uh, was had to stop what he was saying to these people, which, by the way, is unknown to us. We have no record of what he was saying at this time. But we do know that they had arrested a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now, that is very, very curious, to say the least. Uh, adulterous uh, relationships are done behind closed doors in secret. So to be caught in the very uh, act is very suspicious and very uh, untoward, to be honest with you. So they arrested her, they dragged her into the temple, and forced her to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and demanded that Jesus render a verdict about this woman. This is the scene set before us. So when that scene ended, verses 1 through 11, Jesus began to preach. And this is what he said in verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have, but shall have the light of life. This may have been the shortest message that the Lord Jesus Christ ever preached. And the reason is simple. Because as soon as he finished his opening statement of this wonderful passage, or this wonderful message that he was about to preach, he was immediately interrupted by his enemies and called a liar. They called him a liar. You'll see that in verse 13. So it's amazing if you just think about this one verse all by itself. It's a wonderful introductory statement to a message that was never given. So there are two, I think, important issues that I want to deal with this, this, this morning. And we need to consider them as we enter into this, this study, the study of John chapter 8. The first is the abject disrespect the ruling elders of Israel had for the Messiah. They were opposed, or they were determined to be opposed to anything that Jesus said or did. It did not matter to them. They were always going to oppose Jesus of Nazareth. And the second thing is that Jesus routinely delivered the doctrines of Calvary, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, this, this profound teaching in front of a hostile crowd. And so those are the two things I want to spend most of our time with this morning. And then we'll get into verses 1, 2, and part of 3 uh, to end our services. But I think it's important we talk about these two issues as we introduce John chapter 8 this morning. So again, the first issue, the disrespect the elders of Israel had for the Messiah. John 8 is widely described as a discourse between Jesus and the rulers of Israel. Now, a discourse is a, is a civil or a respectful debate between two parties. That's how you would define a discourse. This this passage of scripture has widely been entitled a discourse, but I think that the, the person or the people that originally entitled this passage, uh, mainly verses 12 
through 53, a discourse, we're being very generous in this case. It's really not a, a, a discourse at all. Because this is the historical account or the historical record of Jesus teaching and preaching while having to constantly being interrupted and uh, questioned and accused by his enemies while he's trying to get through the things that he wants to, to say. These religious elite people were delinquent. They were childish, they were immature, and yet they were the leaders of Israel. And can, you have to imagine that Jesus is in the midst of the temple, probably the court of the women. Lots of people are around them, and there was no shame on the part of the religious rulers in what they were about to do. In fact, they had no shame about what they were doing to this poor woman. So let's go through these verses quickly. These men called Jesus a liar in verse 13. Thy record is not true, they said. They asked a contemptuous question in verse 19. Where is thy father? They mocked him in verse 21. Will he kill himself? They demanded he tell them who he is in verse 25. Who art thou? Remember, we are three months before the crucifixion. Jesus had been ministering in Israel for three full years. The thousands of people that have been healed. The Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 4,000. On and on and on we could go on the wonderful things that Jesus did. And they asked him who he is. They rudely opposed his preaching in verse 33. We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye may be made free? Again, they inserted themselves into his teaching in verse 41. We be, not, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. They openly slandered him in verse 48. Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? They attempted to assert they had proof that Jesus was demon-possessed. In verse 57, Thou art not yet 50... Now we know. That was verse 52. Now we know that thou hast a devil. They returned to sneering ridicule in verse 57. Thou art not yet 50 years old. And hast thou seen Abraham? And finally, they reverted to inciting a lynch mob in verse 59, they took up, then took they up stones to cast at him. If you're wondering how they got stones in the middle of the Solomon's temple, it was under construction. It had been, it had been, it had been under construction for decades, and there was rubble. There were stones. The place was built out of stones. And so they picked up stones, and they tried to murder the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the temple. So the second issue... And that is this, the most profound teachings of Jesus were delivered before hostile crowds. This is very important for us to understand. If we look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his Father and of the Holy Spirit for that matter, we can see that he did not deliver divine truth of all the doctrines of Calvary in book form. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't write it all down, and then have it published, and then disseminate this great book, which we call the Bible, to the world. 
And he also did not deliver all the divine truth of the gospel as we know it in a closed room or in a room behind closed doors to only his faithful followers, mainly the disciples. He did not do that. Instead, on many occasions, we find our Lord Jesus Christ preaching in public before his enemies. The gospel was given in a very hostile environment for three and a half years, and it ended in the horrible death of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. So he preached to his enemies. He preached in front of his enemies. He allowed his enemies to confront him on many, many occasions for three and a half years. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And this was all done for very good reason. Jesus' enemies were the finest biblical scholars of their day. They were lawyers. They were doctors of the law, of Moses. They were the religious leaders of Israel. They were also of the educated class. And the educated class has always been a very dangerous class in any society. They were the leading politicians, the leading lawyers, and the, most very, the, and the, and the very powerful landowners of their time. They were the wealthiest. They owned everything. They went to the finest schools. They held on to the best of jobs and they ruled politically. They were the elite. They were the ruling class. They were the philosopher kings of the day, if you've ever read Plato. So these rulers became the, the prototype, if you will, for, for every generation in world history. And that's what's fascinating about the Bible. One of the things that's most fascinating is that Many of the things that we learn, especially from the, the, the rulers of Israel, is how they became the foundation for all other human governments. And sadly, this will include uh, our wayward representatives in Washington. Our, our, our people that represent us in Washington, D.C. today emulate these types of men, arrogant very, very amazing. These men were rich. These men were arrogant. They were self-righteous. They were self-reliant. And they were very, very powerful. You put all that together, and that's a dangerous cocktail. They were also men who were self-deceived. These men lived in reference to themselves. They were religionists, but they were not religious in any way, meaning they had no no connection to the God of the Bible. They had no faith in the God of Abraham. They were traditionalists, but they had, did not have Christ. So what they did was that they made themselves masters over their despised ma masses. They, they had contempt for the people in which they ruled. They could not stand the thought of actually being servants to the people they were called to serve. And that's what a politician's supposed to be. They're supposed to be servants. And yet these men gloried in their being masters, just like our, our politicians do today. Well, they were also liars, another uh, trait of being a politician. 
They were intimidators. They were thieves and they were murderers. That's who we're dealing with. The worst of worst of men. Anything or anyone who got in the way of these men get, or threatened their power, they were going to deal with him and they were going to deal with him swiftly. They became his, their enemy immediately. The irony about all of this is that these men believed that they alone were righteous and all others were unrighteous in all of Israel. They, they, they told the guards of, of the temple the evening before that these people... Our countrymen, these Israelites, are cursed of God. They held everyone outside of their their small oligarchy, their small elitist club, in the highest form of contempt. Do you recall the the Pharisee in John or Luke chapter seven, who invited this unnamed Pharisee who invited Jesus? To dinner, and Jesus accepted. John chapter 7, or Luke chapter 7, and verse 38. Jesus accepted the invitation, and there were uh, traditions in Israel that were still held true, even in the Old Testament, that when a, a rabbi was invited into your home or a, a dignitary was invited into your home, outsiders could, could come in and observe and even get scraps and be fed. And so it was not uncommon to find common people in the homes of these Pharisees and observe what was going on. Well, that's how this, this, this woman came into the Pharisee's house. John, Luke chapter 7, that's the third time I've made that mistake, in verse 38, tells us that a woman who was a, a, a sinner of the city. Let, let's read verse 38, Luke chapter 7 and verse 38. It's important, I think. We won't spend very much time here. But I want to give you an, uh, a, uh, an example of the attitude of the average Pharisee of Israel. Luke chapter 7 and verse 38. Let's start in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the, in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. So we'll stop there. What happened? Well, again, this woman, this, this quote-unquote sinner, this great sinner, uh, everybody uh, knew her as a sinner. That means she was labeled a sinner by the, by the ruling class. This woman found that Jesus was in this man's house for dinner, and she brought an alabaster box of ointment, a sweet-smelling savor, a, a oil that you could anoint the head and the feet, the face. Dr. Luke tells us that, that she stood behind him at his feet and began to weep because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was wiping his feet, cleaning his feet 
because the Pharisee didn't offer him water and did not wash Jesus' feet. And this woman is weeping so much that she's cleaning Jesus' feet with her hair. She kissed his feet and she anointed him with oil. Well, that should move anyone, but not the Pharisee. He was, he was appalled, appalled that this sinner would do something like this to Jesus Christ. And he didn't understand why Jesus did not push the woman away and rebuke her for being too close to a man as righteous as he. This is how the Pharisee was thinking. And for this self-righteous Pharisee, this was evidence that Jesus could not be a prophet. You see how they think? Do you think? Do you see how a self-righteous person thinks? If you're a Christian, this should help you understand how sinful sin really is. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you're like this man. He deduced that if Jesus truly was a prophet, he would have perceived this woman would be a great sinner. Now, I don't know where he got this idea of hatred and contempt for sinners, but this is how they thought. Because if, in his mind, if Jesus would have perceived this, again, that means he's not the prophet, and if he was the prophet, he would have rebuked the woman for the actions. So what does this tell us? Well, first it tells us there is no salvation in any religion outside of Christianity. You ever thought about that? How do you get saved in the Catholic Church? By being baptized? How do you get out of purgatory? By the whim and rule of a, of a priest? How do you get saved in Islam? How hard do you have to work to become saved? being a Mormon. Well, it was the same way there. There was no guarantee of salvation. Well, they're all children of Israel, so all Israelites are saved, but the ruling elders of Israel during this time said that all the people were accursed. There was a hopeless situation for everybody involved. So there was no salvation guaranteed for anyone, and there was no compassion for sinners by the, by the religious rulers of the day. There was only judgment and there was only contempt. There was no hope. There was no love. There was no kindness. There was no guidance. Jesus looked upon the crowds overlooking the sea of people when he fed the 5,000 and he had compassion on them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. They were wandering aimlessly in the dark because they were being abused by their religious rulers. So therefore, in the mind of this unknown Pharisee, Jesus' kindness and Jesus' compassion proved he was not a member of the elite club. He was not one of them. He didn't act like one of them. He sits and he eats with publicans and sinners. He converses with them. He's comfortable with them. This man had proof that Jesus was not one of them. He could not be who he said he was 
because he saw him behave as the Messiah should behave, and he had it all turned around. He couldn't see any of it. He only saw things through his jaded worldview, this religious worldview that he created for himself, that he's righteous, no one else is, and have contempt for anybody that, think, that, 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 that even gets close to him. He was disgusted by what he saw this woman do to Jesus. Consequently, Jesus was of no use to these people. He was no use to the rich and powerful. They would have loved to have had him in their group. The miracles, his excellency of speech, his authority. But he wouldn't play their game, obviously. And, of course, he would not. He was an eternal son of God. So at best, Jesus was a nuisance to these people. And he probably, that's all he was at the beginning. But now, three years into his ministry, he's much more than that. He's a traitor. Jesus was a traitor, in their mind, to their country. In the end, they falsely charged Jesus with sedition, turned him over to the Roman government, and had him crucified. So what is sedition? Why did they think like that? Why did these men think like they were supposed to be religious rulers, but they're thinking like politicians because that's all that they were. A person who commits sedition, who is one that incites the common people of the era, of that, of, of, of that country, to, um, to rebel against the authorities of the day. So they falsely accused Jesus of being a rabble-rouser of the common people of Israel. Well, that's flatly untrue. He never did that. But this is how the ruling class saw Jesus. This is how they saw the world. They didn't see the world through the eyes of God, through the law of Moses, who they were doctors of. They never saw the world through the eyes of the prophets and the kings were the psalmists. And they certainly didn't see the eyes, the world through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. The miracles, the compassion, the wisdom, the authority, the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ had no effect on these men at all. They reasoned, could Jesus be the Messiah? Well, what was their answer? Absolutely not. He could not be the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus did not help their cause and their agenda. They were very, very small men. And so because of their demonic lust for, for wealth and power, that's all they cared about, these politicians were determined to oppose whatever Jesus said or whatever Jesus did. Did you ever think about all those wonderful things that they witnessed? John chapter 5, he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda who was, who was lame for 38 years. Why was there no rejoicing over that? They determined to murder him then for that. They said it was because he broke the law of Moses, that he, that he violated the Sabbath law. But that's not really why. It was because of envy. So Jesus patiently endured all of their attacks, all those months that went by. 
Never once were they able to entrap him in his words. I'm going some, somewhere with all of this, believe it or not. They were never able to entrap him with his words or, success, or successfully contradict his divine message and divine teaching from heaven itself. They posited every argument conceivable to mankind to discredit the very word of God who was standing in their midst in the flesh. And as the prophets of old before him, Jesus stood firm and was able to destroy all of their argumentations, all of their assaults. And this is the reason it is important for us to understand that Jesus declared the truth of the gospel in front of his most ardent enemies. The gospel was brought forth into this world in front of the most heinous sinners and opposers of the gospel. To this, to this day, man has not been able to dismantle the word of God or come up with anything really new to argue against everything that's written in the gospels and everything that's written from, from, from the books of Moses to Revelation, actually. So all that unbelieving men have been able to do for the last 21 centuries is repackage the old arguments made in the first century AD and try to come up with some new clever way to discredit the word of God. This is the great beauty of the Bible itself. God in his infinite wisdom gave us his word, the Holy Scripture, in the midst of the most demonic hatred and op opposition conceivable. And sadly, it was opposed by the very rulers of Israel who were the sons of Abraham himself. So his word that was given again in the midst of demonic hatred and opposition stands firm today. It cannot be dismantled. It cannot be destroyed. It can't be argued against and discredited. And so I think we should study John chapter 8 with all of this in mind. Because this is the scene that was set by these rulers. So let's, let's look at verses 1, 2, and part of verse 3. And we've run, we're running out of time, but I'll make this quick. Verse 1, it literally tells us, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, I have a fan on me that keeps blowing my pages around. Jesus went up, went unto the Mount of Olives. The Greek says, now Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, the last time we heard from Jesus, the last time he spoke, and that's one of the other th fascinating things about the Bible. He will say one sentence or two sentences, and the whole story is built around that one thing. So we have, what, 59 verses? Is it 53 verses in John chapter eight, 7? The last time we hear Jesus speak is in verse 38. So we have 20 verses without him speaking, and yet it's all about him. It's an amazing thing. What did Jesus say in verses 37 and verse 38 of John chapter 7? Well, probably the most profound gospel invitation ever given. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 
He that believeth on me, as the scriptures has said, he's, re, he's, he's pointing their thoughts to the Old Testament, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So the Feast of Tabernacles was over, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus went to rest. He either spent the night in the Mount of Olives, which was common for him, because he never spent the night in Jerusalem during his whole earthly ministry, and, or he went to his friend's home, Mary, Martha, and his good friend Lazarus. We don't know. We don't know where he spent the night, where he slept, but it was either in the garden or at their home. You can, you can, uh, the references are Luke chapter 21 and verse 37 and Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. So this is the scene now. The scene is found, our opening scene is found in verse 2. We see that Jesus is now back at the temple after the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 2 literally says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming toward him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The Greek term for early in the morning is orthru, and it literally means daybreak. He got up while it was still dark, and he traveled to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives went into the temple as the sun was coming up and people could see him. First thing in the morning, he was there. So John reminds us in this passage, verse 2, that Jesus had made many trips to Jerusalem during this last week of the Feast of Tabernacles and now he's going back again. He came again into the temple. And it was at the dawn of the morning. So there were evidently at that time many people, many pilgrims that were uh, getting ready to go back home. Many of them would travel from, many, from long distances to the Feast of Tabernacles. I would think that many of these people wanted just one last look at this grand temple of Solomon. Although it was not Solomon's temple, it was a recreation of Solomon's temple by Herod the Great. Nevertheless... Uh, they were going to come home. Many of them would never see it again. So you can picture these people saying, we've got to get in our caravans. We've got to hit the road. Daylight's burning, but just let us go back one more time. That's, that's kind of how I see this, 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 this scene opening up. And all the people were coming to him, the Bible tells us here. The imperfect tense means that they were, they were coming to him and they continued coming to him. The crowd saw him. They gathered around him. Other people saw the crowds gathering around him, determined, who is that? It must be Jesus of Nazareth. Let's go. So the crowds kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger in this early morning Bible study. For very good reason, I would think. I would want to go to that. I definitely would want to to listen to him one more time. Think about all the things that they were thinking to themselves and saying to themselves in John chapter 7. We are told that after Jesus spoke these wonderful words of the gospel invitation, many believed on him, we are told, in John chapter 7. Others thought, well, he is a good man. Some believe he was a deceiver of the people. A few wanted him uh, arrested. The Jerusalemites, the the actual people that lived in the 
city of Jerusalem believed he was a devil, thought he was a devil, and the Sanhedrin conspired to arrest and murder him. So there was a lot of interest in the Lord Jesus Christ because of last week, and that's why we see this big crowd coming around him. But you think about it. They were going to just arrest him illegally, and he was just going to disappear that night if they got him. He went right back to the temple in the open and began to preach. Without fear, without cowardice, he walked right back into the temple and kept about his father's business. He never let his, his work be unfinished. He sat down and he began to teach. So let's look at the first part of Luke chapter, John chapter 8 and verse 3, the rude interruption, the futility of men who try to confound the Son of God. And we only want to deal with part of this, and we'll, we'll pick up uh, the rest of John chapter 3 next week. But uh, it's important we at least ex- uh, get into this, I think, for a few minutes. The text says, literally, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman taken in adultery and having set her in the midst. So there are, these are some of the same men who were in the council the day before to arrest Jesus in this mock trial, to, to unlawfully convict him and to have him put to death. But they were dejected and they were defeated. They lost. They all went home to their houses. And so how did this happen? How did they, did they, uh, how did they deal with this humiliating defeat just hours before, and now they're back with enthusiastic glee again, trying to do more harm, not only to Jesus, but to their own reputations and to the morale of the whole country. So, Evidently, their, their humiliation did not turn into humility. And that's what you want. When you're humiliated because you've done something wrong, you want to turn that into humility, not pride. You don't want to get more, uh, uh, more uh, aggressive and more stupid. You want to turn humiliation into humility. But these men, some of these men evidently were not capable of this. If they had, they would have stayed in their homes, I would think. But they didn't stay in their homes that night. So at some point, the evening before, some of these Pharisees and scribes got together and they came up with a plan to entrap Jesus again. It's a deviant plot. The nature of it was sophomoric, I think. Smelled of desperation. They showed no wisdom at all. They didn't care about anybody. They only thought in terms of self, power. So they had conspired the night before and devised a plan to entrap the Lord Jesus Christ with the law of Moses. Well, that's a tall order. So what was their plan? Well, on the surface, it seems like a pretty good idea. I mean, after all... They were the top scholars of the day. It was their job to study the law of Moses. They were the doctors of the law. The most qualified, 
Who better to entrap Jesus of Nazareth with the law of Moses? So they probably said among themselves the night before, how can we possibly fail? We're going to get him now. We're the experts of the law. We are going to get him, and we're going to destroy him, and we're going to be rid of him once and for all. Well, they were going to fail. They're going to fail again. Why? Because they were entering into this scheme with full of pride and full of self-righteousness and bad motives. These men who accosted Jesus on this early morning Bible study were motivated by their humiliating defeat the night before. There's an old saying, it just comes out naturally if you've ever seen a fight and uh, the guy gets beaten and he's down. He wants to get up. And the guy that wins usually has some compassion and he'll look at him, he'll just say, stay down. Well, they should have stayed down. They should not have come up with this plan, but they did. They could not help themselves. They were so humiliated the day before they had to get revenge. They were insane with jealousy. They were insane with envy. They had to stop him. So this ingenious plan, if you will, by, by their thinking at least, had one major flaw in it. And it's a big flaw. They were about to confront the author of the law of Moses with the law of Moses. Does that make sense? The author of the law of Moses was about to be confronted with his law. And they thought, yeah, we can beat him. So I want to get into the plan, but I'm going to stop there because we've run out of time. So let me make an observation, and then we'll close our study this morning. Observation number one. Who would desire to follow these types of religious leaders? That's really the question. You would think no one. No one would want to follow these types of people. How How horrible it is for people to have to have a pastor like this or a priest like this A priest that would embarrass their own congregation by dragging a poor young woman before the congregation and calling her an adulteress without even speaking to her before. Even if they did, you don't don't do that. They did. These men dragged this poor woman without her consent in the middle of of a very large gathering of strangers in the midst of Solomon's temple and announced that she was an adulteress. Where is grace? Where is love? Where is compassion? Where is a helping hand of an old man to a young lady? Where is guidance from the word of God or even a rebuke from the word of God in private? Where is wisdom? Where's common decency in any of this? Where's common sense? They didn't even have any of that. They were wholly unqualified to be the rulers of Israel. Look how they abused these poor people. So observation number two. 
the sad reality is that the vast majority of people in our generation and all through world history prefer men like this to be their religious leaders. You ever thought about that? They will willfully submit themselves to this type of a religious system and these types of men. Why? Because true biblical Christianity tells you who and what you really are. That's why. And men do not want to be confronted with what they really are. And common man-made religion that has the name Christianity on it will never tell you who you really are. The picture's not pleasant, is it, of what a man really is. David in his psalm said, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Well, that cuts across all of human thinking about what we think of ourselves. Nobody wants to think of themselves in those terms. So what do men do? Well, they love religion. We're naturally religious. Everybody wants some type of a religion, whether it's Islam or Mormonism or Catholicism or being a Baptist or being a Church of England or Episcopalian, which are basically the same thing, or a Lutheran or an atheist. That's a religion too, you know. What do they do? They create a religion where they join a religion that's compatible with how they think about themselves. And what they don't do is make sure, what they do do is make sure the realities of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are completely hidden from the members of these churches. A religion where there is no mention of your sin, where there's no need to be saved from your sin, And there is no salvation from sin, which is really the, the, great, the great scandal of all of these religions. There's no mention of the command from the Lord Jesus Christ to repent and believe the gospel. There's really no talk of person and work of the Messiah himself. There's no knowledge of him. You don't get to really know the pastor or the priest in your congregation. It all has to be at arm's length. It's all a mysterious fog. And yet you're very comfortable there. It has to be kept mysterious to have a religious connotation to it. But it's empty. There's nothing there. It doesn't give you anything. But it keeps you safe in your traditions. So what you do? What do usually men do? Well, you keep looking at the architecture of the building, or you love the stained glass windows, or you, or you love that pipe, or that, 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 that organ with the 20-foot pipes in it, or the grand singers, or the man in the silk robes and the purple hat. Those are the things you look for. So the people that created these religions and the people that go to these churches are complicit 
There's no victims in these churches. They're all there together to keep the gospel out of their thinking. Stubbornly. They continue the lie that they are good men, that they follow the golden rule, or that their infant baptism is good enough for them and they're going to be saved and go to heaven. Or my family's always done it this way. That's kind of what these men were. These wicked rulers, they thought the same way that I described of people today. They were more vicious, obviously. But they all thought the same way. They did not want to be confronted with their sin and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we make of all this? They refuse the gospel at all cost. And what is the cost? Refusing the gospel. What's the damnation of your very soul? Is what it is. You'll refuse to do one thing, the one thing, that the gospel commands all men to do. What, what is it? It tells us in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message of the gospel. There is no other message of the gospel. And that's why Jesus told and did all this in front of his most ardent enemies. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is all-encompassing. Once you enter into the world of the gospel, there's nowhere to hide. You stand naked and bare before God himself. It reveals to men what they really are. And before you can be saved, you have to come to terms with who you are. You have to admit what you are, a lost sinner in need of salvation. You must admit, you must see for yourself that you are a sinner and at enmity with God himself. Our sin is so great that the punishment is eternal death eternal hell. And the good news is the gospel is that the remedy for all of that is eternal salvation by the eternal Son of God. He was the only one that could do this for you and for me. Jesus came to pay our debt. What is the debt owed for our sin? The debt owed is death. And Jesus came to represent you and me, to take our place and to pay the eternal debt of death itself. He died an eternal death. He paid the price that was eternal for your sins and mine. He was made a transgressor for you. He was made a transgressor for me. He was made a curse for you and me. He was made sin for you and me. He took all that on himself. And he died an eternal death and took on an eternal punishment. And all those who rest in him, all those who come to him in repentance and faith will be saved. Not by our works, not by our, our faith, not by our, our desire to, to be saved, but we're saved by grace through faith that was all given to us by God. But any man, 
who refuses in arrogance and refuses to believe will never come to Christ. The only type of person that will ever come to Jesus Christ is a man in abject humility. Never, never go to God or even talk about God under your breath that it's some type of a scam or it's not real or he's not real. If you do that in arrogance, he will not receive you. But he's never, ever turned away an honest seeker. He's never turned away a humble seeker. The Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's the real issue. Are you lost? Do you know that you're lost? If there's any inkling of this, consider these things. Because you cannot rely on anything else for your soul eternally than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope in our salvation. He is our only hope in that we may become friends of God. Only and found in Jesus Christ, our paraclete, our representative, our savior. And so how do we end this? Flee from your arrogance. Flee from your skepticism. Flee from your traditions. Flee from your man-made religions. The message of the gospel is very simple. You must be born again. All right. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can come to you in this free country to worship you in public without fear of harm. May you be pleased to take this freedom that we have and open the hearts and minds of people across this country to consider the states of their soul. May all of us in this room be blessed by the person and work, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ. May you bless each and every one of us this day and forevermore through your son's work on the, on the cross at Calvary. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.